O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what I'm going to do when I get home? I'm going to dig out my old grade book and I'm going to put an A by that girl's name. (laughs) It's one thing to quote scripture. It's another thing to have scripture in the collective worship service be, can I use this word, presented. And I appreciate it so much. Listen online from the message last week, long section of scripture quoted. Thank you, Morgan, so very much for doing that for us today. You have no idea how wonderful it is for my lovely wife, Miss Carla, and I to be here today. It's been many years since we were actually here at Sunnybrook uh, before, but so many dear friends and former students that are in this staff, it feels very comfortable to be here. I probably should tell you this too, just because of where we are. But when we are home, we attend a Sunday school class by a fellow that runs a uh, furniture store in Joplin who was at one time a tight end for the Cowboys. Does that get me any help here at all? Uh, so anyway, uh, we appreciate Jay Cruz and being in his Sunday school class at our church at College Heights. We have known Jim and Andrea for these many, many years. Early in the days of school, had Paul in class over here. I mean, that goes way back, brother, you know. And uh, anyway, it's just so delightful for us to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Jim, uh, to be with you, and especially to jump into this series on the Gospel of Matthew. Well, years ago, in fact, it goes clear back to 1986, wow, 30 years ago, that a fellow by the name of Ralph Cornelius wrote a journal article um, summarizing other journal articles. This is what scholars do, you know. (laughs) They, they, They kind of do research to write up what everybody else has written up, and that's kind of what this guy did. What he did was he researched all of the journal articles, are you ready for this date, from 1850. Now think about journals that would have been in circulation at that time. Till 1985 on the subject of tears, as in your eyes, tears. And he tried to assimilate these articles and what they were saying and whether they were articles from the field of science or from the field of psychology, they all said the same thing. That there is a therapeutic value to tears. I mean, common voice from both fields of study, tears. Valuable. Scientists have known for a while that there are different types of tears, you know. Uh, There is, first of all, what's called basal tears, B-A-S-A-L, and it just means the tears that come from your tear ducts to lubricate the eye so that it works properly. I mean, here on this last Sunday of February 2017, we are still, after all these years, traveling for Ozark Christian College and doing this sort of itinerant ministry on the weekend. When we first moved to the college way back in 1983, we came from a seven-year ministry in Illinois, and so we just started attending church in Joplin, and then a call came to the college, can we have one of those rusty old professors to come to our church? So anyway, I was the young guy at the time, and uh, 
So I said, I could go. And it was to a church in Tulsa. The preacher had resigned. He and his wife were moving. And the church was having a going away party for him. Because uh, they had served there these number of years. And uh, they wanted to say thank you and give him the day off. And so, guest speaker. So I go in. What I found out was they were moving to Seattle, Washington. That's a bit of a trip from Tulsa. And so I found out why. It was the preacher's wife's eyes. Her tear ducts produced no basal tears. Her eyes was dry as the Sahara Desert. And the doctor said, look, you need to go to a wetter climate. Well, Tulsa has what, 37 inches of rain a year or something like that? Seattle has 55. Okay. So, basal tears. Then, secondly, there are reflex tears. You know about these. I mean, you can be in the kitchen chopping away on the onions, and what happens? You begin to weep. Or you can be like Jim Johnson and play hockey, take a blow to the head, and everybody weeps. But anyway, you know, it's, yeah, sometimes we'll begin to weep when we've taken a blow to the head. That's, that's reflex tears. It's the third category that fascinated Ralph Cornelius. The third category, in layman's terms, is called emotional tears that somehow come from not just your tear ducts, but from deep in your soul and deep in your heart. And in fact, scientists know that these are different kind of things because they have 24% more protein than other types of tears. So there must be some way that the Creator wired us when we give these kind of emotional tears. Question, do you think Jesus the Christ had emotional tears? Now, interestingly enough, the gospel record does not record the laughter of Jesus. That's odd because I'm pretty convinced he said some pretty funny things. They don't seem funny to us because we've heard the punchline before. In fact, the definition of a joke is this. Are you ready? A sudden perception of an incongruity. Boy, that's funny. Anyway, you know, it's just, it's the turn. What makes humor humorous is the turn. And because we've heard the turn, it's no longer funny. But my hunch is that day on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. Somebody was elbowing his wife saying, oh, Ethel, that's a good one. You know, I mean, that's probably what they did. Jesus said some funny stuff. In fact, the humor of the Bible, at least if my friend Jeff Snell is correct, the humor of the Bible is irony and sarcasm and paranomasia. Paranomasia is a figure of speech that means a play on words. And that's pretty true. So there's a lot of that in Scripture. In fact, there was a Quaker fella named Elton Trueblood who wrote a book called the, the Humor of Christ. Now listen, when you need a Quaker to write on humor, you know you're desperate, okay? That's just, whoa. And I love Elton Trueblood. I think he has a lot to say. Jim has a friend in Canada named Blaine, and uh, he wrote a dissertation one time entitled The Quest for the Hysterical Jesus. <laughs> If you know anything about the world of theology, scholars are always searching for the quest for the historical Jesus. How do we know that the Jesus of Scripture is the Jesus that we know? And so he just kind of did a play off that, the quest for the historical Jesus. I'm convinced Jesus said some funny things. But interestingly enough, the gospel record doesn't contain the humor of Jesus or tell us that he laughed. It does contain his tears. It does contain his tears. In fact, I'm guessing at least twice, that I'm sure of, maybe a third time, Jesus cried. You remember one of the first of those occasions. It was the 11th chapter of John. You probably memorized this as a kid, right? Because it's a very short verse. Got points for your team. 
Verse 35, Jesus wept. Wow, he comes to Mary and Martha. They're upset. He views the death scene, the stone, and shares with great sympathy and empathy the moment. And it just says, there's a whole sermon in this. Jesus wept. Now, he knew what he was going to do. The Greek word for wept is the word that means to shed a tear. He just shed a tear because he knew what he was going to do. His prayer that he sort of prays for everybody else there gives evidence that he knew. He was ready to say, Lazarus, come out. And the Bible says, and the dead man came out. Good thing he said Lazarus. He'd have emptied the cemetery, right? (laughs) So Jesus wept. But there's a second time when Jesus wept. And it was when he got on that donkey and that he rode from those little communities of Bethphage and Bethany just a little ways away. Now they're behind barbed wire fence. Doggone it. And he rode up to the top of the Mount of Olives and he crossed the hill and Luke 20, 21 says, and Jesus wept. Now that Greek word for wept means he really wept. He shook And he wailed, and it was heaving in his chest. Some of you, because I know you take these trips to the Holy Land, some of you were there. Let me show you. We overlapped with you all. We were in Jerusalem when some of you this year were in Jerusalem. In fact, this crazy guy gets off a moving bus to hug us and runs back on. But we were sure glad to see Jim and know that some of you, this is our little group. This is our guide, a Greek Orthodox believer who was born on the Via Dolorosa, whose mother died while giving birth to him, Mike Abu Libda. He was a good guide. This is where they typically take the pictures. But if you move just to the north, just to the right of that picture, that's the crest of the hill. A lady has a house up there. And that's probably, I can't be sure, but you can't prove I'm wrong, that Jesus would have gotten there and looks over the city. He didn't see the Dome of the Rock, by the way. But he saw a temple which, by the way, is twice as tall and twice as long as that. And he wept over the lostness of Jerusalem. Hmm. I wonder if he came to the Stillwater Y and got off the tow road, if he would look over here and say, Oh, Stillwater, oh, Stillwater. Wept. The text doesn't exactly say this, but I think a third time he might have wept is in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, if you go from where that picture is, just down and a little bit to the right, you'll come across a garden where at least the trees are 1,000 years old. I don't know if they're 2,000 years. They tell you they are. But Josephus tells us they used up all the wood to crucify people in 70 AD. So I'm not sure. But big trees, olive trees. And somewhere in there, Jesus said, Abba, Abba. All things are possible to you. That's very problematic. If what the Lord Jesus is saying is true, then why did God the Father... Was it that heaven stayed stone cold that day because of his love for you? Take this cup from me. Sweat becoming, as it were, great drops of blood... Then a long Paul Harvey pause. Nevertheless, he prays this through clenched teeth, I think. 
not my will, but yours be done. You say, well, there's nothing in the text about crying there. True. But in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, in verses 7 through 10, it says that Jesus, while he was in the flesh, cried out with loud tears and cries to God who was able to save him from death and learned obedience through his suffering. I'm kind of thinking that could be Gethsemane. It just maybe could. The Bible records the tears of Jesus in this text. And in fact, you know this. You're in a series of studies. There would be some things that Jesus would say in the Gospel of Matthew that had a certain solemnity to them, a seriousness to them, certainly where you're in your study right now. Could I catch you up to speed just a little bit since we've had a week pass by, since we gathered around the Lord's table together? Matthew chapter 21 is the beginning of what we call Passion Week. Jesus comes riding into town like he owns the place, because he does. He curses a fig tree to show that he's Lord over nature. And by the way, I don't have time to talk about the significance of the fig tree. He uh, cleanses the temple. That sort of got their goat a little bit. And they finally said, hey, 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 hey. Who, hey, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? Hmm. The master teacher turns it back on them, and he answers a question with a question. Students, doesn't that just drive you crazy? I have a question for you. The baptism of John, from heaven, from men? Heaven from men? I thought it'd be heaven or hell. Isn't that the contrast? Heaven and men, that seems like he's drawing a bead between humanism and theism to me. And they said, as they got in their little holy huddle, um, we don't know. And Jesus said, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> now I'm not going to tell you. But then he does tell them. He tells them through those upside down stories we call parables. So three events, which lead to three parables, which lead to three questions on Tuesday the busiest day in the life of Jesus. We know more about Tuesday of the final week in Jesus' life than any other single day in his life. Is it right to take, pay taxes to Caesar or not? In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers those questions splendidly. And then he says, are you quite done? I have a question for you. The Messiah Whose son is he? Well, that's like a game show question. <clears throat> David, the answer is David, uh, David's son, the Messiah is David's son, David. That's the answer, David. My second boy would say, good, this isn't rocket surgery. Anyway, um, he loves to mix the metaphors. Anyway, so, good. So here's my question. If he's David's son, how can he be David's Lord at the same time? See, it's a theological teaser from Psalm 110, and what Jesus is saying is, deal with me. Deal with me. Deal with my identity here. And it says they didn't ask him any other questions. I bet. And then comes this chapter. Chapter 23. Where in the first 12 verses, Jesus speaks to the crowds and the disciples about the Pharisees. And then your text last week, 13 to 36, he speaks to the Pharisees, and then the, quest, the text that Morgan quoted for us today. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's called a lament 
if we had an hour and a half, we'd go to the Psalms and we'd kind of beef it up a little bit and show what this is like. A lament. Read the book of Lamentations if you want more on it. I can say at least this. For 37 years, there was a teacher at our school who taught Old Testament and Hebrew and archaeology. His name was Wilbur Fields. He's still alive. He's 90 now. He lives in the Spring River Christian Village. Recently, some of our students who'd never had him for class went out to see him on his 90th birthday. And he combined uh, Numbers 6 with Roy Rogers. It's a bit odd, but to say this man is unique would be a ginormous understatement. He said to the students, oh, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord lift up his face and shine upon thee. Happy trails to you. Until Only Wilberfields could put number six with Roy Rogers. But I took him home one day. It was winter. His car was in the shop. He had walked to school that morning. He lived on 20th Street. His house no longer exists. The tornado took care of that. And that was quite a ways from 20th Street over to the school. And when I learned he walked, I said, Brother Fields, don't do that. I'll take, I'll take, if your car's broken down, I'll take you to school. I'll get you home. Can I give you a ride home? Oh, Brother Mark, I can, no, can I give you a ride home, please? Well, all right, dear brother. So I took him home. It was getting dark. I noticed the little Methodist church right by his house had one of those marquee church signs, you know. And I saw that statement on there. And I thought, oh, man, that's so good. I'm going to remember that and write that down when I get home. I lived about 12 blocks. I couldn't remember it. Anyway, I thought, okay, I'm going to get this. So the next morning when I went to school early, I went to that little parking lot and I shined my bright lights on that sign. And this is what it said. Spiritual sicknesses can't be cured by religious quacks. Spiritual sicknesses can't be cured by religious quacks. And I thought to myself, that's Matthew 23. Jesus is addressing the quackery of the Jewish leaders of his day. So I've come from Joplin, Missouri to ask you this question today. Any quacks in the audience? Don't raise your hand. Anybody practicing spiritual malpractice at this church? Well, what's it like to realize that, no, if I'm spiritually sound, then I won't be practicing quackery. These, what are we to do with all of this? Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yes, he said some pretty strong things. You got that sermon. I listened to it online last week. But may I tell you that the dark lines of Jesus' face are not lines of hatred. They are lines of concern and love. And so he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Why did he say it twice? Like when he speaks to Martha. Oh, Martha, Martha. Do you know the word Jerusalem appears about 813 times in your Bible? But only on this occasion and the parallel passage in Luke does Jesus say it second time. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is like your mother using your middle name when you were in trouble. Did you have that happen? When I heard Mark Robert, I ran for the hills, okay? Well, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who... Kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen. Oh, ladies in the audience, please pay attention. As a hen gathers her chicks, her brood, says the ESV, under her wings. But you were stubborn little chickens. You were stubborn chicks. You wouldn't come. God is likening himself to femininity here. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 24, God is spirit. 
So I'm guessing he's not gender specific, but very gender inclusive. He made different gender, didn't he? And so my point would be, there are masculinities and femininities in God's church. We call the church the bride of Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, act like men. He says that to the whole church. So I guess there's manliness in the bride of Christ. And I'm thinking to myself here, Jesus pictures God the Father as a mother hen. That nurturing nature that says, come chicks, come, get out of the storm, come under your mother's protection. What a beautiful image. And he moves from the hen to the metaphor of the hen house. Your house will be left to you desolate. It's a reference to the temple. It gets us ready for the next chapter. And here's what I have to say to your preaching minister with regard to chapter 24. Good luck. That's a tough one. If you thought Matthew 23, he beat you up last week, I got news for you. Come next week. Whew. The disciples are impressed with these massive stones, and some of them are huge, not native to Jerusalem, and some of them 90 feet long. Do you know how much that weighs? Some people think it was miraculous. I don't know. But the disciples said, oh, look at these stones. This is really quite a house. And Jesus said, there's coming a day when not one stone will be left on another. And you know what they said in that moment, the disciples? Not one blessed thing. Because they were stunned. I mean, not even Peter could speak. That's something. And they keep their trap shut and they go down the Kidron Valley and up the other side of the Garden of Gethsemane. And they get up to the top of the Mount of Olives and finally somebody gets the courage to say, Lord, Lord. Peter has a question. <laughs> Well, when will these things be, and <clears throat> what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age? End of the age? Why are they asking about the end of the world? Because for them, the end of the temple meant the end of the world. And Jesus says, well, it's not exactly like that. Your house will be left to you desolate, and 40 years later, when Titus brought his army, they took that place apart stone by stone. And that's why Jesus said, the next time you see me, you will say, and this is kind of this umbrella statement that can refer to the second coming or the triumphal entry. It's kind of an umbrella statement that sits over all of Jesus' ministry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a lament, folks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, Stillwater, oh, Stillwater, oh, Sunnybrook, oh, Sunnybrook. Go ahead and put your own name in there. Wow, what about these tears? Here's what I came from Joplin, Missouri to tell you today. Because what you heard described in last week's sermon is ugly faith. Ugly faith. Here's what I came to say. Jesus weeps over ugly faith. Let that sink. Jesus weeps over ugly faith. Anybody here today have ugly faith? A fellow that used to teach up the road from you here at Enid, Oklahoma, Dr. Fred Craddock, he has a very helpful question to ask of any time we do Bible study. He says, anytime you're doing Bible study, ask yourself, where do you stand in the text? It's so easy for us to think we're the heroes. So I'd like to ask two questions this morning that will help us know where we stand in the text. Here's the first question. Do I share Jesus' angst? Angst is the best word I know to get a hold of this word, whoa, ooh, I, ooh, I, ooh, I. Seven or eight times in the chapter, blind guides several times, hypocrites several times. 
There's a regret. There's also a compassion. There's a denunciation. There's also love as Jesus speaks this message to them. Do you share Jesus' angst? Do your spiritual tear ducts work well? Maybe you need to read the Old Testament some more. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 6.6. I am worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Ever been there? Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water. Listen to verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. How about the weeping prophet Jeremiah 9.1? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night. And then the classic, you would have studied it earlier on in your study, your series, the greatest sermon ever preached. Congratulations to you. When you weep and wail for this stained planet, because then God will walk right alongside of you. That's my paraphrase of, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Hmm. What do you cry about? Do you know, I mean, I'm, no kind of, I, I'm not very observant. A lot of stuff just goes right over my head. But I can tell an awful lot about you. If you show me your phone and show me your appointments for this week, if you show me your online banking statement, I'm sure you want to do that, I can tell what your priorities are. What you use your debit card for, that shows your priorities. But you tell me what you laugh at. I mean, it's on television. And you tell me what you cry about, and I can tell you your heart. So, do you share Jesus' angst? Do you you ever feel burdened down as you listen to the 530 News? And it really doesn't matter whether it's CNN or ABC or Fox or NBC or CBS. It doesn't really matter. The message is all the same. Romans 3.23. Do you have his angst? Do you cry over lost people? Jesus looked at Jerusalem with, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're killing me. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Hmm. Back in 1988, we had gone out to Denver to participate in a Christ and Youth Conference out there, and there was this church in California that thought we should be their preaching minister. I'd already signed my contract at the college for the next year. I wasn't going anywhere. The, the dean was going to be gone. I was going to kind of do some of his work. And so I told him, I said, look, I'm not interested in, in coming, but they, they wanted to woo us a little bit, sort of like you all did with Jim and Andrea. I've almost forgiven you. I've almost forgiven you. And so we flew from Denver to Huntington Beach, and uh, we tried to warn the kids, now look, don't get too excited about this. That worked well. You know, Dad, this is so cool. Can we move here? Shut up. Anyway, so it just, <laughs> they wined us, they dined us, took us to the Orange Hill restaurant. Whoa, up in the mountains east of L.A. I do not belong there. Okay, I'm used to eating with a spork. And... Um, <laughs> I mean, cloth napkins, holy smokes, two forks. Uh, Wow, I'm lost. We had this dinner. I looked for the cheapest thing on the menu to order. I was feeling guilty. And uh, after dinner, they took us out on the deck of the Orange Hill Restaurant. And there you could see the lights in Southern California coming on all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Lights and lights and lights. As far as the eye could see, lights. And one of our hosts came over to me and said, Mark, Every one of those lights represents 20 lost people. 
my wife and I stood on the deck of the Orange Hill restaurant and we broke down and wept for the lostness of Southern California. Some years later, we were in a missionary conference in Germany at the end of the year after Christmas. And we took our youngest daughter and uh, she started questioning me about the trip a little bit. She said, Dad, when's the conference over? I said, well, December 30th, December 31st, I think. Why? When are we flying home? January 3rd, out of Frankfurt. She said, so we got a couple days. Yeah. So can we go to Paris? I said, that is like driving from Joplin to Indianapolis. I'm not taking you to Paris. Dad, they got those fast roads. I said, I am not getting on the Autobahn and taking you to Paris. He's got this thing about Paris. And she said, Daddy, please, I don't do that. So when I was at the rental car company checking out the car to go to Paris, <laughs> I, uh, I got in this Audi 6000 with a six-speed and a turbo. Oh, boy, it was fast. It was good. <laughs> you don't even want to know. But anyway, uh, so we did Paris on New Year's sat in our hotel room the New Year's Eve because it was raining with cats and dogs and watched Ben-Hur in French. It was terribly edifying. <laughs> but the next day the sun came out and everybody was at the Eiffel Tower. I thought, don't you people know, go home and watch football, please. There are guests in your country. But um, anyway, we did Paris. We did Paris. The Louvre, you know, Notre Dame, Arch de Triomphe. It was wonderful. Our friends, our missionary friends taught us how to ride the subways. There's a little knack to that, I guess. And so anyway, we, we, we got on the subway and it went down. It stopped and the lights dimmed. I thought, oh boy. And then a cell phone went off. And a little French girl, 18, 19, 21, I don't know how old she was, answers this phone. And her boyfriend, her fiance, her husband begins to look concerned and all we heard her say was, Daddy! 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 And my heart broke. And we didn't know what to do. And we were able to piece together finally that Daddy didn't make it in time to the hospital. I never wanted to speak French so bad in all my life. I so wanted to go up to her and say, Ma'am, I'm a Christian minister. Is there anything I can do? But I didn't know how to communicate those words. And so we just prayed. And the subway came back to life. And it went to the next station. And that young couple got off out into that lonely world. Sometimes you just hurt for this stained planet, don't you? Do you share Jesus' angst for lost people and grieving folks? Back in the day where those Bibles are, there were some hymnals. It's a book with songs in it. <clears throat> Don't worry about it. But some of us who've been a little, got snow on the mountain up here, some of us remember singing a certain song that was done by Ralph Graff and um, the, a songwriter by the name of Joseph Hall. Actually, he wrote the music in 1901. It was based on 1 Peter 5, 7. 
Cast all your anxieties on him, for he careth for you. And the song was, raise your hand if you ever sung it, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus Care? You remember singing that one years ago? Does Jesus Care? The first verse deals with the daily grind. Does Jesus care about the daily grind? Second verse is about the dark nights of your soul. Third verse is about when you face temptation. But the fourth verse says, when you lose your spouse. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? There's a woman named Sonia Markham in Joplin, Missouri today who's crying because Jim died. He used to work at the college. But I bet you, because I know Sonia, that she can with gusto sing the chorus. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. His heart is touched by my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Do you share his angst? I hope you do. I wish I could just stop and we could go to lunch. But I told you there's two questions. I won't spend as long with the second. But the second question I have to ask when I'm in this text, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this lament, is not just do I share his angst. I want to have his heart. I want to cry over what Jesus cries over. That's okay. But here's what I have to face. Religious people killed Jesus. And I am one of those. So my second question is this. Does Jesus ever weep over you? Does Jesus weep over you? I mean, he's weeping over these people in this passage. Does he weep over you? May I tell you that one occupational hazard of being a Christian is this, that the things of God can become common to you. And you can just keep coming to church and standing when you're supposed to stand and singing when you're supposed to sing and being on autopilot and forgetting somehow that you are in the presence of greatness. And you lose your doxology and the spiritual enterprises dry up in your soul and you end up with an ugly faith. When I walked down through the passage you heard last Sunday, verses 13 to 36, it's very humbling. Jesus says, you hinder people from getting in the kingdom, you rascals. And you are duplicitous and hypocritical and you major in the minors and you kill the people sent to you. And when I look down at those seven or eight woes, depending on what you do with verse 14, there's a textual problem, but I won't go into that. I think to myself, I have committed every one of those. I have been duplicitous and hypocritical, and you don't have time for me to hang out my dirty laundry. I have majored in the minors and forgotten the love of God and the heart of God. I have been guilty of... We have a little grandson named Bowen. He came into this world at 10 pounds, 14 ounces. His mom delivered him, our daughter, naturally, with the help of the doctor jumping on her, standing up and down, getting that baby out. Bowen would make Dennis the Menace look like a choir boy. Okay? But sometimes he'll say to his gaga, I got your problems. I got your problems. Yeah, he does. That's a true statement. He does. This boy has problems. But I read verses 13 to 36 and I think, I got some problems. I got some big problems. I wonder if the Lord Jesus doesn't look down at me at times and say, so you had a birthday, huh? 
64 now, is that right? And your spiritual birthday just happened on February the 4th. Been following you for 55 years, haven't you, Mark? Do you know where you should be by now? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Dr. Fred Craddock, I mentioned him earlier. He happened to be in Israel where some of you have gone. He was by this wall. You've seen this wall, the Wailing Wall. It's called religiously, the, uh, geogra- archaeologically, it's called the Western Wall. It's as close to that the Jews can get to the Temple Mound. There's little Hebrew schools and synagogues taking place around there. Court of the men, court of the women. I, I, I wrote a prayer and I put it in that wall. I said, oh God, please heal both of my type 1 diabetic daughters. I prayed that for years, every day. Prayed it this morning. So we're gathered there. But I also saw a rabbi come by and one of the little boys was sleeping. He smacked him. One way to do school, I guess. (laughs) Dr. Craddock was standing there one day and a fight broke out between two rabbinic groups of students. I mean, they, they were having verbal blows about this argument, and the verbal blows led to fisticuffs, and the Jerusalem police had to be called to separate these theological students. Do you know what they were arguing over? Are you ready? When does the Sabbath technically start? Now, that'll cause you to punch your neighbor, you know? <laughs> does it start at the going down of the sun, or does it start at the appearance of the first evening star? And these guys were getting into it, fighting, and a little Jewish woman saw the little Dr. Craddock And with very good English, she came over to him and she said, excuse me, are you an American? He said, yes, ma'am. She said, are you a Christian? He said, yes, ma'am. And then she said, now do you see why Jesus didn't have a prayer in this town? (laughs) Well, yeah. Oh, sometimes we've acted in ways that have driven people from God. I'm the most guilty person here. Roger Olson and Stanley Grentz wrote a book years ago called Who Needs Theology? And in the book, they define a Christian this way. I kind of like this definition. They say, a Christian is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. And sometimes I don't think I've been a Christian because I made it hard. Do you? Do, do you make it easy for others to believe in God? If not, Jesus may be weeping over you this morning. Duplicitous? Oh, brother. My friend Krista Welt asked it this way. Are you the same person holding a communion tray on Sunday morning as you are holding a remote control on Saturday night? Are you the same person? There's so much here. I need to draw a string around it. I guess what I'd ask you today is just this simple question. It's hard. It's kind of uncomfortable for a guest to ask this. Do you have ugly faith? Is Jesus weeping over you today? Do you share his angst and what he weeps over? To me, this little paragraph that Morgan quoted for us is sort of Paul's version of 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. How about this? How about today? 
we do everything in our power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to, to be as far from ugly faith as possible so that he doesn't have to weep over us. Instead, as Zephaniah 3 says, he can sing over us. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, thank you for your tears. Help us to more appropriately approximate your heart, to weep over the things that break your heart, and then to look in the mirror and to be blessed by knowing we've been defined by a new reality. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been challenged this morning to put ourselves in the text and to ask some tough questions. I appreciate Brother Mark's uh, passion and ability to communicate that truth. Um, well, what I love and the reason why I left the college, I told you this, is because as much as I love preaching, I love the conversations that happen after with the people of God. That's what I said to you. And so we talk about continuing what? Continuing the faith conversation. And uh, Mark will be here if you want to talk. I'll be here if you want to talk. I know there'll be men and women up here who will uh, spend some time to talk with you about this. If not, you can go back to your life groups. or uh, These are even maybe conversations, not that where you need uh, to have a conversation um, because you have questions, but maybe, maybe there's someone in your life that you need to talk to them about whether or not they're processing some of the things that this scripture speaks to us. And so that is our desire, isn't it? To become more like Christ, to submit to his word, um, to go gather and grow in such a way that God is glorified, that the world knows the reality that God is alive, not just in us, but it's one element, but that God is alive. And so we pray that that definitely will be a part of what's going on. So please, as I say, walk this way instead of that way. And uh, we can continue the faith conversation. For those of you that want to walk that way, um, our college students are doing a fundraiser today. And uh, they were meeting in the college room the first, after the first service. After this service, they're going to be meeting in the hub, which is just off the gymnasium. And so if you want to help uh, support or eat, just eat some good food, help support their mission trip to New Mexico that's coming up, I know they would love to meet with you. Love you guys, God bless, and we will see you Wednesday night.